the reduction of injustice, well, we'll put a disclaimer out there that says we don't discriminate. That is not the same thing as, as, as freedom. It is not the same thing as proactively trying to procure um, the leadership of people of color with disabilities. It is not the same thing as proactively trying to create talent pipelines. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voices of Vision Leaders podcast. I'm Dominic Loricella, standing in for Lee Nasahi. And today's guest is disability justice advocate and Black Disabled Lives Matter amplifier, Justice Shorter. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be in conversation and in community with you this afternoon. Justice is currently the National Disaster Protection Advisor for the National Disability Rights Network and has a long history of working within the disability community. Justice is speaking with us today independent of any specific organizational affiliation, and as such, all opinions and comments are her own. With that being said, Justice, I'll toss it over to you to tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thank you. I think to sum it up in a way that is clear and concise, I would say most of my work sits at the intersection of disaster justice, racial justice, disability justice, gender justice issues. And I mention all of those different justice-based movements because they are inextricably linked, right? You cannot have a conversation about disaster justice without also being inclusive of a disability justice perspective because those who are the most impacted by disasters and crises more often than not tend to be individuals with disabilities. But so too can you not sever that from considerations around racial justice Justice as well, right? When you think about people of color with disabilities who are disproportionately impacted by crises. And that also blends into conversations around gender justice and education justice, right? So sometimes when I'm talking to folks, I mentioned that the, the goal here when working in various communities is to ensure that we are justice-centered as opposed to justice-adjacent. And what I mean by that is that people often like to cherry-pick what they, what they choose to focus on and push everything out as if we live single-issued lives, which we do not, um, as Audre Lorde has, has taught us in the past, right? What I mean by that is that I am a black, blind, lesbian woman. At no point can you sever one aspect of my identity from the other. So you can't tell me that you care about my identity as someone with a disability and then care nothing about the experiences that I have to endure as someone who is black or the experiences that I have to particularly deal with as a black woman who is also blind. So all of those things have to be dealt with. There has to be space held for those things simultaneously. Uh, no longer are folks asking or even accepting the premise that we should sit back and wait until it is it is our time um, to finally get access to justice, finally get access to equitable treatment, whether that be in a workplace or in classrooms, whether that be in the hospital rooms or in the courtrooms, right? Access to equity and justice is really um, the core piece of, of everything that I touch. And I blend that into uh, the work that I do as a national advisor, um, as it relates to um, people with disabilities, protecting the rights, the safety, the dignity of people with disabilities throughout crises and disasters, or if I'm doing that type of work in relation to mentorship or community building, or whether it be connected to the work I do in terms of teaching uh, future generations of emerging leaders in this space. You talked a little bit about being the National Disaster Protection Advisor. Talk to me a little bit about how you got there and your experiences with all that. I mean, of course, I wanted to focus on being a, a blind woman, but as you said, you know, you can't you can't just take one piece of yourself. You got to combine all these aspects of a, of a human being. What can you tell me about how you you got to where you are today? Um, with a lot of love. <laughs> so I always uh, trace my trajectory. 
in this space. And so that starts off for me uh, with Leola Daniels Carter, who is my grandmother. Um, and then she gave birth to my mother, Lily Mae Carter. And then I think about on my father's side, my grandmother, uh, Fanny Jahari, who gave birth then to my father, Michael Demetrius Shorter. Of the four people that I just named, only one is still living, but all of them taught me the essential tenets of what it means to love. And that is important because love is the driver that keeps me moving in this work, right? It is the fuel behind my passion. And so sometimes people say that we, you know, we love the communities or we love the work that I do, or we love the work that we do, and yet there is not a true emphasis or a commitment to make sure that those people have access to uh, self-determination or agency or autonomy or the power to pursue whatever their aspirations are. Um, there's a wonderful book written by Adam Kahane, and it's called Power and Love. And I'm paraphrasing here because he uses language that I'm, I'm, that's a bit medicalized and I try to steer away from that a bit. But the quote that I paraphrased here is that, that power without love is abusive and love without power is ambivalent, right? So if you love a community enough, you also want to make sure that they have the power to make decisions for themselves, to dream in whatever ways that they choose to dream and to actually bring those dreams into reality, right? And if you have power, you want to make sure that it is used in such a way that does not bring forth additional pain and abuse and neglect or exploitation um, of the people that you work with. And for that to happen, you, there has to be love involved with that, right? To prevent such uh, negative uh, impacts from happening and harmful impacts from happening in a community. But when I'm asked this question, Dominic, I typically come back to one uh, pivotal place in my mind. And that is not just how I got to this place or how I came to this work, but I always turn that question over in my mind and say, why are there not more here beside me? Right? Like, why, why are there not, you know, 23, 43, 53 um, folks just like me, Black, blind women or blind women of color um, who are also maybe a representative of the LGBTQIA community who come from different rural communities, who come from um, central city areas, but who, who are immigrants who might be undocumented, but all of these different voices, because the piece that I'll be talking about during the conference is all about um, diversity and inclusion and equity and justice. But I like to think about this in terms of understanding the, 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 the names and the, the nuances and the narratives behind the numbers. So when you look at some of the numbers, according to the CDC, one in four Black people have some sort of disability, mental health consideration, or access and functional need. And yet we are not represented in the upper echelons of leadership at many of these disability-centric organizations. My question is, why? My question is, why don't you see more of us in some of your um, higher education um, institutions? Why is that the case? My question is, to why don't you see us in more positions of leadership throughout government? Um, that is a question that I, I tend to ask. Dr. Maya Angelou once said, I may come as one, but I stand as 10,000. And what that means is the recognition that there are people who stand beside me, people who are in my peer group, who are of my generation, but there are also people who came before me. And there will also surely be people who come after me. All of those people have to be considered when we ask the question, how you got to where you have gotten to. I think a lot of people probably, probably ask that question, you know, why aren't they seeing more of them? You mentioned the, the leadership conference that you'll be speaking at. And I wanted to ask, what do you say to, to others, whether they're, whether, you know, they have a disability or to the employers, you know, how, what sort of advice do you have to make it so there's, there's more people who are represented, who are able to have these accessible workplaces? 
You mentioned the word represented, and I always come back to one of my favorite quotes by uh, Rashad Robinson, who is the president of Color for Change. And he says that representation is not the same as power. It does not equal power. And what I mean by that is that there is a difference between symbolism and substance. Um, not everybody who has a disability want to work, wants to work on disability-related issues. Not everyone who is a person of color wants to work on racial justice issues. Not everyone who is trans or um, who is a cisgender woman maybe want to work on uh, gender-related issues, right? And so simply having someone in that position, although that is a wonderful reflection of, of what is possible and making sure that there um, are, are, there's a mirroring of the communities that we serve. People are, are being able to see themselves reflected back to them in terms of the leadership. There has to also be uh, a simultaneous conversation that is had around the decisions that are being made. Are decisions being made that are, are, are done in the best interest, the priorities, the considerations of those communities, right? What does that look like in terms of policies and programmatic change? I tell folks quite often that it, uh, I can't take you seriously if you tell me that you have 13 people with disabilities that sit on your board or that are a part of your leadership team in total. And yet when we examine your policies, your programs, the projects that you work on, the things that you fund, none of it has a disability-centric or disability-oriented lens, right? None of it continues to, to stretch out and think about people with all types of disabilities and all types of spaces, right? Again, undocumented folks with disabilities, low-income folks with disabilities, rural folks with disabilities, people of color with disabilities. All of these different intersections need to be interwoven into the work that we do. Um, so I always, I always tend to think about that, but I also will perhaps um, think through the perspectives of, of a couple of people who I love. And I've been dropping quotes this entire time. And that is because I am a bibliophile. I am constantly reading and I, I see myself, this wasn't mentioned in my introduction, but perhaps I will update it because I see myself as a curator and a courier trying to channel and bring in uh, or bring forth wonderful tidbits and nuggets and books and perspectives and commentary um, from all walks of life and from a wide pool of, of individuals who are just doing spectacular work, whether it be through lived experiences or learned expertise. But having said that, if you are telling me some of the things that I would, would hope that folks remember or be inspired by or moved by or just to, to stop and digest a little bit more, I will perhaps give them these words. And I will maybe even mention this perhaps surely during my, my session during the conference because they have hit me so strongly. And it goes like this, that prejudice is a burden that confuses the past, threatens the future, and renders the present inaccessible. And that's by Dr. Maya Angelou. And then we move on to Ella Baker, who teaches us that the reduction of injustice is not the same as freedom. So if we're talking about how do we create work environments that give staff members the capacity to think freely, but then also to be able to work in a manner that is not only premised on their standard of productivity, but also how can they live out there? How can they be free enough to live out their dreams? How can they be free enough to really be creative um, and to make the best impact that they can make, right? If we're thinking about creating partnerships, whether it be locally or nationally, um, with leaders of all different types of background, then we're not disqualifying them in one way or another, then these are the, the considerations that one needs to make, right? The reduction of injustice, well, we'll put a disclaimer out there that says we don't discriminate. That is not the same thing as, as, as freedom. It is not the same thing as proactively trying to procure 
um, the leadership of people of color with disabilities. It is not the same thing as proactively trying to create talent pipelines. It is not the same thing as proactively doing kind of a 365 or, three, or 360 assessment rather um, of your organization as it relates to equity um, and, and inclusion and understanding that from a multi-directional perch, right? Where it's not just the leaders examining the leaders, but it's everyone from the intern on up. It's everyone from the volunteer on up really trying to assess how this organization is doing as it relates to equity, as it relates to justice, as it relates to diversity, as it relates to inclusion. So getting into like specifics on that, obviously you've had a long career, long history with breaking down these barriers. What are some of the barriers that that you've seen companies adapt to help people with? Yeah, so I think it varies. It, it, it varies by the industry or the field. <laughs> um, and, and, and obviously it, it varies by the, the individual group or organization that we're examining. But I think some things that have been quite encouraging, at least as it relates to the pandemic, and most of us who are, are part of this conference work on you know, disability or blindness issues in some way, shape or form. So are probably already privy to this information, but the, the moving towards uh, providing accommodations uh, for everybody in a way that is far more accessible and far more um, sustainable uh, than what had been previously granted, I think is a huge step forward. What we're trying to uh, prevent now is the prospect of those things being rolled back now that folks are trying to roll it backwards into whatever they consider to be pre-pandemic standards of normalcy, right? So things like the people having flexible work hours, people being able to work remotely, um, people being, you know, project-based, you know, just get the project done, you know, let's let's just focus on what, what the outcomes are in that regard and kind of leaving people to their, their own creative um, freedoms in terms of, of how that happens or, or, or um, you know, the, the degree to which it happens. I think that is really encouraging. I think that's really cool. I think it's really neat. Um, having consistent check-ins with staff members, I, I found to be rather encouraging as well. Um, and I mean that by way of trying to create additional mental health options for staff, um, trying to examine company cultures, um, because we, the, the pandemic is not the only crisis that has that has been going on. We, we are dealing with concurrent crises in terms of racial injustice as well. And so with the uprisings that happened throughout 2020 and 2021, there was a effort at the time um, to try to check in on, on what the, um, what levels of harm, what level of hurt, um, what levels of redress needed to take place um, in terms of, of the, the organization and the posture that it has, it's, it's taken, um, since its inception or, you know, throughout the, you know, recent years and, and recent memory. So a lot of organizations had begun to take a very internalized view of their institutions. And I found that to be really encouraging. My concern though, is the shift from, uh, you know, which, which end of the spectrum do people tend to sit on? And what I mean by that is, is your commitment to the transformational or is it simply transactional and trendy? Right? I typically say that those of us who are people of color with disabilities, we live at these intersections. We did not come here to visit, right? 
So I'm, I'm wondering, are, as organizations, are we truly trying to transform the culture, trying to transform the communities and the cities that we live in, the states that we live in, the country, the world that we live in, or are we simply riding the wave of what's trendy? And then when the wind blows in an opposite direction, when there's some sort of backlash, then we all kind of cower away or we, we roll back those mission statements that we, that we put up on our websites. We roll back those, those standards that we, that we tried to put forth, those policy standards. Um, all of those things roll back. We kind of just bounce around in terms of just what's trendy because we were afraid of being called out on social media. Um, so that really will give you a good sense of what, what folks are doing, kind of the sustained engagement, the, the sustained commitment uh, to doing this work. Because again, those of us who live it don't have the luxury or even the interest of popping in and out of it um, based on, on you know, where the wind blows in terms of the attention um, that we as a, a society are culturally focused on at the time. So I think all of those are things that have been top of mind for me. One, being terribly excited and inspired by some of the accommodations that have been made more widely available, but also peppering that with a little bit of caution and hopes that those things will be continued and sustained. And then on the other hand, thinking about some of these more granular gestures that has happened around um, you know, commitments to justice, commitment to equity, commitment to diversity and inclusion in terms of the uprisings and hoping that those things continue as well throughout time. So I am cautious, but I am also um, optimistic um, but I'm also thinking about this in terms of accountability and uh, how that's going to look like uh, for the long term. Beyond all that, you've seen this on a national scale. Uh, you served as Disability Integration Advisor with the U.S. Federal Management Agency. What can you tell me about that position and your work there, the importance of disability, inclusive disaster protections, you know, things of that nature? So I, what I will say around that is, is quite simple, that, that crises only amplify inequities, right? Crises only amplify pre-existing inequities. And we, we, we know this to be true, right? If, if people don't have health care, it's only significantly worse when you have a crisis that is also happening, whether it be a flood, whether it be a wildfire. Um, if people are displaced, you know, you're dealing with, with some having, not having access to housing, not having access to uh, your durable medical equipment or your consumable medical supplies. All of these are issues that could be a, a problem um, if you have enough time to deal with it in a crisis if you don't. Um, and so when I first uh, started to take activities in daily living, when I first began to lose my vision, um, or as my vision just actually started to, to decrease um, as a teenager even more than it, than it had for years, um, I took these, these courses, activities in daily living, which many of us take, these independence courses, you know, these how to live independently courses or live amongst other courses um, at my local blindness organization. <laughs> so at the time it was called Badger Association of the Blind. Now it is called Vision Forward out in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, but one of the things that I learned there from the instructor, is she said that the difference between a problem and a crisis is time. And so people with disabilities have to deal with problems on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's what we call blue sky times in the emergency world or the emergency management crisis management time is when a, a kind of a large scale mass event is not happening at the moment. We, we tend to call those sometimes blue sky times, but people with disabilities are consistently, constantly dealing with, with some form of a problem, whether it be not being able to have physical access to the different things in your community or whether it not being able to have programmatic access to 
the various features of a, a government service or a community-based resource or even a job um, or effective communication access related to, to um, how you engage with the world around you. So people deal with disabilities deal with these problems consistently. And although it may be perceived as, as kind of not a high level issue, it is an absolute problem. Um, but we can, we, if we have the time, often we can deal with them. Often we have come up with ingenious ways to, to mitigate those problems um, and, and kind of find alternatives and workarounds and through direct advocacy, be able to really break down what those barriers are. But then I also think about this in terms of when you do not have enough time, for example, when you are in the midst of a crisis, when a storm is quite literally bearing down on you, right? Like those problems, you're not having access to effective communication. That is a problem when you need to gain access to life-saving or life-sustaining information in terms of emergency messaging. When you are trying to get the information that the governor is providing or that the mayor is providing or their local emergency manager is providing, and there's no sign language interpreter on screen, that is indeed a problem. When information is not available, in plain language or in, in alternative formats, that is a problem, right? Um, when you go onto websites where a lot of information is posted quite timely, um, and that website is inaccessible for a screen reader, that is a problem, right? That is a crisis for you. It's a problem, and and and. and on an everyday level when, when there's not a, a large scale disaster um, afoot, but it is, a, it is a crisis when that storm is coming and you need access to that information, but you need access to those programs, those shelters um, to, in terms of physical access or programmatic access. So I think um, having done work within the disability sphere um, for the majority of my career has uh, really prepared me quite well um, for the, the work that I've, I've done over the last several years um, related to disasters, crises, and conflicts, right? Um, because my first question always becomes, where are the people with disabilities? What, and, and where, before a conflict or before a disaster or crisis, and then also where are they afterwards? And that question first came to me when I was studying abroad in Uganda and Rwanda and thinking about the genocide that took place in Rwanda. My question became, where were the people with disabilities before the genocide and how were they able to evacuate? How were they able to flee the violence? You have these same questions that have not changed as we examine what's happening right now in Ukraine, where you're hearing all types of concerns around people with disabilities being able to evacuate and gain access to the supports that they need in order to be safe. Um, these are still the same things that we're dealing with in terms of crises and conflicts. It, it happens literally in, in every single emergency event. So it's, it's happening locally, it's happening on the state level, it's happening regionally, um, but it's also happening nationally and internationally as well. It sounds like your passion for this has been lifelong. And I'm curious, how did developing a visual impairment sort of shape the way your, your career went? Was this always sort of the idea? No. <laughs> and I, the reason why I say that, the reason why I think it's so important for folks to continue to do outreach in a diverse uh, way is because, you know, I, I did not grow up with a lot of other Black blind women around me um, who were working in different fields and who were pursuing different types of career goals. Not to say that they didn't exist. I just didn't have direct connections with them. And so my community, I didn't have that my community circle in terms of my family or my friends or my school teachers and people that I knew. Again, proximity matters here. Um, I did not have that in my reach. And so I sometimes will be 
<laughs> spoken to by different folks in the blindness community and was like, don't you have blind pride? Where's your blind pride? And I'm like, listen, I, I grew up first with black pride because that is the community that nurtured me. That is the community that raised me. Um, and then in addition to that, it wasn't until later on in my life that I learned about disability uh, rights and then uh, going a step further then learned about disability justice, which really, you know, kind of picks up where disability rights leaves off. Um, and I, that is when I really began to see myself in ways that I had never fathomed before. The first time I was able to understand that I could be disabled, I could be queer or a member of the LGBTQIA community, I could be a woman, I could be a, a lover of books and a lover of, of, of culture and a lover of art. Um, I could be all of these things at once. And I found other folks who also sat at that intersection and who could reach out to me and help lead me along the way. You know, Stacey Park Milburn, who is one of the um, co-creators really of what we now know as the disability justice framework, in addition to Mia Mingus and Patty Milburn or Patty Byrne, um, has this phrase that's called uh, uh, disability doulas. <laughs> and the idea around that is just that folks that help usher you into your disability, that help you learn about all of the different parts of life that you will now have access to. What does this mean for you culturally? Um, what does this mean in terms of, you know, for you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but just having someone there to help guide you along the way. Um, I, I had that in bits and pieces from different folks, but again, none of them identified in the ways that I identify, um, but I am still thankful for their presence. Um, the first person who invested in me that was outside of my family in terms of, of my vision loss was a man by the name of Jerry Mueller, who was a, a lawyer who graduated from Marquette University, the same university that I ended up going to years later. But this man was also my debate coach in middle school, of which I was the captain. And um, he uh, was also blind. And when I first started to notice differences in my vision that I could no longer as a kid um, just kind of hide or, or, or move away from, he is the one who made sure that I had access to the equipment, um, that I had access to, to all of the, the tools that I needed. Um, he was one of my biggest champions, one of my biggest advocates, um, again, outside of my family, in addition to other folks who didn't even have disabilities. But through him, I saw uh, also a road um, that, that helped me to conceive of other things that were possible. So, um, I, I have an immense love for that man, um, and immense love for others who have also been with me along my trajectory. What advice do you have for, you know, someone who's maybe just developed a, whether it's a, a visual impairment or any sort of disability, what do you say to them? Find somebody who you can reach out to and hold on to. Um, somebody who can hold space for you when things get hard, because we talk about these issues of pride as if prejudice doesn't still exist. Um, and we talk about these issues of pride as if pain doesn't also exist, as if we talk about healing as if harm and hurt has not happened in a way that necessitated healing in the first place. And so my first go-to is always, who are you talking to? Who, who is being tender towards you? Um, so disability justice also teaches us that where you have two or more folks with disabilities who are moving in a spirit of love, who are moving in a spirit of collective care, um, there is a blossoming and a blooming that takes place there. And um, 
so that is that is the kind of the first the first go to, and that can happen via online communities. That can happen in terms of physical spaces, but again, also virtual spaces, right? Um, and then also, how do you you know what is happening for you internally? How are you you know? And I, I say this, and I, I I don't always like to point to books. Books are my medium. They are the things that I love. But for others, it might be podcasts. For others, it might be music. For others, it might be art, the visual arts. Um, for others, it might be sculptures, for others, like whatever um, kind of form of artistry or creativity or knowledge that speaks to you, um, that helps you to mold and shape who you are as a person, gravitate towards that. And believe no one who tells you that there's one set way to be someone who was blind, that there is one set way to be someone with a disability, that there's one set way to be someone, of, uh, a person of color, that there's one set way to be you. Believe no one who tries to to feed you such a falsehood, right? I have learned the very most um, when I stopped <laughs> just going by the things that people were trying to force feed me. And I started going by the things that were feeding my soul, the things that were cracking me open inside. And I mean, in the very best of ways, um, the things that taught me about boundaries, the things that taught me about hope, the things that taught me about freedom, the things that taught me about me. And that is what I would encourage people to do. One does not need to have all of the answers. One just needs to um, be able to keep asking the right questions until you, you keep navigating towards something that feels or, or brings forth some semblance of serenity for you, some semblance of satisfaction for you. Um, that is what I, I encourage people to look for. Listen, we're not trying to get to perfection. Perfection is something that is steeped in white supremacy, this idea that you can only be one way. Um, and if it is not this, then it is deviant. And if it's not this, it is broken. If it is not this, then it is wrong. And that is not, um, that is not healthy. It is, it is not, and I don't mean healthy in terms of medical sense. I mean healthy in terms of like well-being, your, your own personal well-being. Um, it's not okay for us to, to think in such, such uh, narrow terms. And so I'm, I'm always thinking in terms of understanding that life is not linear. Sometimes we zigzag, sometimes we go back and forth, sometimes we're moving at a diagonal, um, but we are, we are making some forms of progress, however we deem to be the most important, however we deem to be the most accessible um, and acceptable for our own lives. That's not anything that somebody else is telling us is the right way to go. We're writing down uh, and trying to force ourselves into the blueprint of another, but rather we are out there sketching every single day, every line, every shade, every color. We are out there sketching whatever lives that we want to leave for ourselves and there is freedom in that. There is a fluidity in that. There's a flexibility in that. There is life in that. You talk about finding someone and, and finding, finding others. You created WOC World. What can you tell me about that? What was its purpose? Just yeah. tell me a little bit about it. So WAC World, which stands for Women of Color, but WAC World is a virtual community for blind women of color. It was created by myself, Conchita Hernandez, and Melissa Lomax. And essentially what we did was try to, you know, compose or com comprise a, a community of blind women of color from across the country um, and just connect folks. And so we just created the space and folks use it however they want to use it. At present, it consists of a Facebook group. It also consists of a listserv but also direct access to myself or Conchita or Melissa should people need any sort of material support that we can help coordinate. We are now in the process of, of um, transferring leadership to the next three people who will take it over. Um, and so that needs to happen within the next couple of months. I've been 
dealing with a barrage of different projects, but that is the goal because um, Ella Baker also taught us that we don't need strong leaders. We need strong people. We need a strong community, right? Um, and so it's not just you, we are only looking to three or so people always to, to do everything, especially when those three people are dealing with the multitude of other projects and priorities and family and personal things going on, really exciting things going on in terms of family and love and kids and um, wonderful things that are happening in that regard. So the idea that power can be shared. <laughs> Remember what I was talking about before, power and love, like we can, we can decentralize power in that way so that other folks get the chance to lead this group and take it to its next iteration. So that's what the process is currently consisting of. If there are any blind women of color who are listening to this podcast or who will be in attendance at this um, conference, I highly encourage you to reach out to me or check out the group on Facebook. It's WOC world, a virtual community for blind women of color, or feel free to connect with me directly. And I'll be more than happy to um, get you in, uh, involved in the group. And you can find me on my website, which is justashorter.com. I wanted to ask about what you'll be speaking at, at the Vision Serve Alliance Executive Leadership Conference. Yeah, so my session is called Power Moves, and it's also um, primarily focused on kind of transformational power uh, as it relates to, to equity and inclusion within employment and in the workplace. Um, so we'll we'll talk about that. And again, Dominic, it's, it's everything that I've been talking about this whole session, right? It's talking about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, how to put that into practice. It's talking about commitments versus actual change. It's talking about the difference between decision makers and storytellers, how both of those things are valuable, but we also need to make sure that there is some cross-pollinization happening here, that people themselves with disabilities are not always on the periphery, especially as it relates to people um, who have any sort of visual disability or, or blindness. Um, it'll be talking about the different things that we can do as leaders in executive level positions uh, to make sure that we are focusing in on some of the, again, the, the hurt, the harm, but also the healing um, that is necessary for communities to really progress forward. And I mean community, I mean the communities in which we work. Right, um, and how important that is. Um, so what does that mean in terms of our staffing? What does that mean in terms of our talent pipelines? What does that mean in terms of our, the composition of our boards? Um, how decisions are made? Listen, there is nothing more demoralizing to, than to be a person of color asked to work on something related to more equity around people of color and then have a room full of white folks tell you that this is not the direction that we're going to go in. It's nothing more, it, it is, it is, um, well, actually, let me paraphrase that. There are many things that are more demoralizing than that because I recognize the history of all the communities that people of color uh, come from. And those have been terribly hard and, and, and harsh and difficult histories. But I, I mean that in terms of, of just some of the things that we are dealing with right now um, in terms of people saying that we want to move in a direction that is more equitable and, and, and the emotional labor, the intellectual labor that it takes to do that work often when you're not even getting paid more to do it. <laughs> and then to be told by leaders, the majority of whom are white in many of these organizations, um, that this is not the right time or this is not the direction that we, we don't see this as being a priority right now. Or we'll, we'll do some of this, but we're not gonna do this because it's just, this is, this is, not, this is not what is necessary. Um, so I ask the question, who decides what is important? Who decides what is equitable? Who decides what is uh, a necessity? Is that a, a, a conversation that is had um, with those that are most impacted or is it decided by you know, those who 
again, I have a bit of distance, a bit of, you know, has a, have a disassociation from um, what is actually happening in the lives, the work lives um, of these individuals on a day-to-day basis. So those are some of the questions, those are some of the conversations that we'll try to inspire during this. And people will um, ideally leave with a sense of purpose um, and hopefully be ready to, to move forward in a way that's going to um, truly impact the lives of the, the folks who they uh, work with on a day-to-day basis. You bring up a good point is, you know, you, you talk about how demoralizing it, it can be. And a lot of times I think people just sort of feel like an onlooker. So I'm, I'm curious, how can people help? So we'll talk about that a little bit more during this session as well. There's there's a number of different things that people can do. And I'm, I'm going to take people through what I call the trajectory of transformation. It goes from the historical all the way down to the hopeful. Um, so it looks at the different levels that, that people can, can enter into. So there's the recognition of the history. So that's also unearthing some of the hurt, the harm um, that has happened before. Um, right. And that is a whole, you know, excavation process. Right. Um, because there's also a lot of erasure that has happened. Um, so there's there's that piece of it. And then we kind of move from that looking towards some of the structural or the institutional issues. So what kind of policies, what kind of programs, what kind of a project change needs to happen right, procedurally as well. Then from there, we kind of move to, OK, or is your entry point? more interpersonal, what, what is going on in terms of the day-to-day relationship, the, the, the biases, the prejudices, um, the microaggressions or the overt aggressions that happen within this, this, this particular space is my entry point here. You know, is it a point of mediation? Is it a point of conflict resolution? Is it a point of just holding space and, and consistently advocating so that I have a, a list of kind of red flag issues when I notice that this comes up, that is my activation point. I know that I need to come out and advocate on these issues. Or am I doing consistent check-ins um, with these communities that are directly impacted saying, okay, do you even need me to step in for this? Or do you want me to kind of wait in the wings? How can I use um, my whatever I have within my capacity to support you in this? So a lot of that is asking the question, not simply making presumptions. And then from there, we go to the internal. So see, we're kind of going from the granular down all the way down to kind of the from the macro to the micro here. And the, the internal, what is going on inside um, you personally? What are you putting into you in terms of, again, as I mentioned before, what kind of content are you consuming to help you grow consistently? It's not just reading one book and moving on or listening to one podcast, grabbing one podcast and thinking that now you know everything and you're good, but how is you how, how is your growth con- continuously happening? How is your understanding and your just commitment to these issues? Um, how is that something that is being sustained? And then from there, we move on to the hopeful and the world building. What are we all doing collectively um, to build the world that is more free, that is more fluid, that is more flexible, um, that is more safe, that is more just for us all? Thank you again, Justice, for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about Justice, you can visit her website at justiceshorter.com. DSA's Executive Leadership Conference takes place in Tampa, Florida from April 3rd to the 6th. And on behalf of Lee Nasahi and all of Vision Serve Alliance, thank you again for listening and stay tuned for future episodes of the Voices of Vision Leaders podcast.